Welcome to Get Your Head Back in the Game. This is a podcast about the amazing human spirit to overcome setbacks and stories to inspire you to get your head back in the game. My name is Melissa Ross. I am a mother, a wife, a sibling, a former professional cyclist, a cycling coach, and a serial entrepreneur. I am a traumatic brain injury warrior. I have lost everything and have fought my way back step by step. And I invite you to do the same. So get ready to join me for this wild ride. Hello and welcome to episode three of Get Your Head Back in the Game. My name is Melissa Ross, and I will be talking with Rebecca McKee. She is the owner and founder of Peak Center Alaska. She's a cycling and triathlon coach of over 20 years and a phenomenal Ironman athlete herself. She recently won her age group at the Ironman Arizona race. And today she's going to be talking about her story with Ironman, Um, she also dealt with cancer and she talks about dealing with, you know, disappointment in a race and how you overcome that. So tune in and listen to this interview. Today, we are going to talk with Rebecca McKee. She is our Ironman athlete extraordinaire who has done Ironman Kona World Championships seven times, 14 Ironmans, 38 half Ironmans, and has been coaching triathletes and cyclists for over 20 years. Um, Rebecca lives in Alaska until she gets tired of the darkness and the cold. And she is here to talk about her story, which is going to be inspiring and hopefully fill your cup today. Rebecca, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Melissa. Um, first I want to talk about, um, you know, you've been coaching and doing triathlon for a really long time. Like how did you get into the sport and you know, what were, you know, what was it like when you're starting out? Well, it's always interesting. I actually really love this story and I've told it many times. So I always feel like when I repeat it, somebody's already heard it, but I had a really good friend who was a Olympic level skier who talked me into doing a race in Alaska called the gold nugget triathlon. At the time, it was the largest women's triathlon in the nation and one of the longest running as well. Oh, wow. And so we had one of the largest women's races. And for me, it was just this completely foreign thing, but you know, like probably everybody else in my generation, we had seen that epic, you know, Julie Moss crawling across the finish line in Kona. And, you know, in my mind, that was triathlon, you know, this struggle, this really amazing achievement, you know, sitting there as I was a little kid, you know, quote, when that, went on and, you know, just crying, feeling such an emotional connection to seeing that on a, you know, Sunday morning. And I was thought, sure, let's try this triathlon thing. I couldn't swim really. I'd done some little guppy things as a kid. And, um, I had been biking and running hobby wise, but did not have a bike that I could ride for this event. And in fact, I borrowed a bike for it. I only owned a mountain bike at the time and was, somebody that was just a hobby runner. So showed up at the gold nugget triathlon and my 500 time was over 12 minutes. I had to stop at the end of each wall, my counter, because it was in a swimming pool in Alaska. And my counter had to ask me more than once if I was okay. (laughs) As I I stopped and held onto the lane line, hoping I wasn't going to die and, you know, jumped out, got on this bike that didn't fit me. And you know, really struggled on the bike course. It was a, maybe an 11 mile bike course. And then the 5k run took me over 11 minutes a mile. And I crossed that finish line and you would have thought I won the world championship. You know, I, (laughs) you know, I, um, I even feel emotional now talking about it. It was such a monumental moment in my life. You know, I, this very short event 
that I struggled so terribly through and did all by myself and finished. And, you know, there's this balloon arch at the finish line and they said my name and I don't think I even finished in the top 200. The race takes about, you know, maybe an hour for the, for the, for the middle, you know, middle pack. I'm maybe an hour and a half, almost two hours, maybe. And the, the fanfare and the camaraderie and all the people, it was just really exciting. And I just crossed that finish line and just had this really deep connection to the sport instantly. And I just knew, I knew that I was going to be doing this for the rest of my life. I knew that I had more in me. I knew that I could do it better. And, you know, that's the, that's the, the fishing lure, right? That's the addictive side of the sport, that little right. tiny teaser. And the, the cool part about the story is in 2014, I went back and finished second woman overall in that event. Oh, wow. Only, yeah, only to um, a woman that went pro that year. Right. She became a professional triathlete. And so I think it's a, a really neat story. And I mean, even inspiring to me when I tell it, because I started off as somebody that didn't even know how to put these, this sport together. Right. And just went out and did this swim, did this bike, did this run and, you know, look at this journey that I've been on. And it's, I recently put a post up on Facebook about how invested I am in the sport and how emotionally tied to it I am. And it's scary to have all your eggs in that basket, but also I think when you want to compete at the level that I want to compete at, it's kind of the way you have to do it. And if you look at other sports, you see that right. Other sports, those athletes go all in. Yeah. So that's kind of my story on how I got started. And then after that, um, the amount of money spent is outrageous. (laughs) (laughs) How's that? (laughs) Oh, this sport, it'll make you broke. Um, so when you went from that point on, did you, um, like, how did you get into coaching, um, and that part of the story? So that was in 2000. And I think, especially living in Alaska, getting into the triathlon community was really hard at that point. We had races that would show up races that would fall off. The one event that always happened here was the Gold Nugget and another event called the Eagle River Triathlon. And so it was just kind of this, I'm going to do these these two little events because I wasn't brave enough to do anything that had a lake or, you know, open water swim, especially in Alaska with the temperatures. Right. And, and so it was just kind of a hobby thing probably for the first couple of years. And then I got involved with my marketing background. I got involved with a group of guys here called the Turkey Toe Triathlon (laughs) group. And those guys were the ones that were putting on races outside. And so kind of got, got involved with them. And in 2004, uh, a member of our community, which is kind of a crazy story because this guy came to us and said, Hey, I think we should start a triathlon club. And he approached myself and another man in our community. And this guy while he was a triathlete, he was really a dabbling triathlete. And so it was kind of crazy that he was this outside source. He ended up later, you know, leaving the state. He doesn't do triathlons at all. He's living a whole different life now, but really we have to kind of credit this Eric Bronder for coming on and saying, you guys should do this thing. And so we started the triathlon club in Alaska in 2004, and we had this massive overwhelming response to that. And with that, we had an abundant number of people desperately trying to find coaches. And so I ended up becoming a default coach, which by the way, you know, I look back at when I was coaching back then. And I think that was terrible. And I always wondered to myself now, you know, there's so many people out there calling themselves coaches and they're not, that's what I'm going to say. They're not coaches. And I wasn't a coach either at that point, but I had some friends that let me torture them and people that were, you know, that that trusted me and I was lucky. They helped guide me to be, you know, a better, a better coach along the way. And from there, 
I really got into the science side. I have to credit my husband, Brendan, for a lot of that. He's a engineer type. And so he's always pushing me to look at the science. And so I would say really by 2006, I started realizing I got to do this the right way. And I wasn't interested in going back to college again. I've done that many times, have many degrees. And so I took a whole nother path on, on how to learn and went out and took courses and things that I thought would help me be a better, a better coach, like, you know, learning about massage, learning about the body, going and looking at, you know, kinesiology. So it just kind of started building and snowballing from there. And then yeah, uh, opening the metabolic lab, you know, learning how to, you know, process metabolic data. We, you know, we do lactate analysis, metabolic and VO2 max, started working with all different types of people in all different sports. Yeah. And so, yeah, I know that was a long answer. <laughs> so it just kind of snowballed. It was just kind of something that rolled right into my life that, you know, all of a sudden I kind of blinked and I was like, this is exactly where I need to be. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I've always thought that it's, it's amazing how many people are in a triathlon in Alaska and in Anchorage area can considering the, you know, the seasons are so short for doing triathlon and you, I mean, I feel like you have to really travel a good distance to get to some of those bigger events. It's true. And you know, I'll also say this, we just have a really, really sporty community up here. I mean, we have produced a lot of Olympians, NHL, you know, NFL, Major League Baseball. I mean, we have a lot of very high level athletes that come out of Alaska, Olympic rowers. We have an Olympic figure skater, you know, um, our, our lab tech lane, her husband, Keegan Messing, he's an Olympic skater, figure oh, wow. skater for, for Canada, oh. right? We have people, yeah. We have people in our lab all the time that are, you know, going out and doing the highest level they can do Spartan racers. I mean, I think some of it has to do with the fact that we can't really do much else here yeah. besides be sporty and get outside. And, but yeah, the triathlon side is, is hard, especially because most of our training is indoors. We're swimming inside, we're biking inside, we're running inside. Right. And we have a lot of high level athletes from here. We've, we've had some people that have won, you know, the, Ironman world championships. Wow. Top five finishers. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Um, I guess, you know, living in those conditions can make you really tough mentally too. And you kind of need that to, you know, yeah, get to through those, those events. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, um, what happened, um, when you got cancer? And what's that story? So the, the, the cancer thing was kind of interesting because I was young. It was in 2001. And I had just done a race here in Alaska called Mount Marathon, which is a really big deal for Alaskans. It's a very iconic race. There's only three races in the nation that are older than Mount Marathon. And it is a three-mile foot race that basically starts at sea level and you run up 3,044 feet to the top of this mountain and come back down in over three miles round oh, trip. Wow. And it is a nasty, nasty race. I mean, un unfortunately, there's been a lot of really significant injuries. You know, people have had life altering injuries from this event. And um, I'd had probably the best year that I have ever had on the mountain that year on the 4th of July. And I had gone in for a routine pap smear because I was changing jobs and wanted to get in on my old insurance. And so I kind of forced my doctor into getting me in almost six months early because I wanted to get in on my insurance. And I'm literally sitting in the, the meeting, the Monday morning meeting of my brand new company. When I get this phone call, the receptionist like interrupted the meeting and she's like, you need to come out and you have an emergency phone call. And I'm like, well, this is a great way to start a brand new job. Right. <laughs> the whole, the whole company's sitting here and um, yeah, they were like, you need to come back in. And unfortunately, even back in the early two thousands, 
they still did the things that they have really moved away from doing where they don't tell you anything. They just scare the shit out of you and, you know, disrupt your life as big as possible. And the only thing that was communicated to me was you have abnormal results. You need to come in. And I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? And they're like, you need to come in today. And you're like, well, what does that mean? You know, what do you mean? I need to come in today. Wow. And so, you know, basically from like the 8th of July, between the 8th of July and the 27th of July, I went from, you have this scary result to having a three-quarter colonization of my cervix. I had adenocarcinoma of the cervix, which is an actual cancerous tumor on my cervix. And so it all happened really, really fast and you can't really absorb it. You, you don't really, you're just trying to do the next thing that you think is the best thing for you with all this information that's being thrown at you, but you don't have a, a ton of time to respond emotionally. Right. And so, um, I had cancer on the 8th of July and by the 1st of August, I was cancer free. And so it was just a, you know, a really whirlwind scenario, but you're never cancer free. Yeah. So that's the thing. Cancer is always with you and it's always in the back of your mind. And for me, it created um, a mental disorder, honestly, straight up of hypochondria. I am a terrible hypochondriac now. I, in my mind, you know, I was this fit person that didn't have anything wrong with me. I'm in my early twenties. The world is my oyster. And all of a sudden you just told me that I am very sick and that I can die. <laughs> you know, and, and if we don't take care of this, I will die. And that really shifted my perspective of everything in my world. And I'm sure this resonates with anybody that's been given a diagnosis like that. And so from there, then you have to start, I was really lucky. I didn't have to do any kind of chemo. I didn't have to do radiation. I had to do hormone replacement. Um, I, you know, not to get too much into my medical scenarios, but certain procedures probably should have happened. Like I probably should have had a full hysterectomy, but they didn't want to do that for me. But then at that point in time, I was told you basically can't ever carry a child. And so the funny part about this is, is that the decisions that were made then uneducated are highly affecting my life now in my fifties. And so that's why, that's why I say, you know, cancer is never gone, but you know, anytime I don't feel good, anytime I, there's a lot of emotional triggers that, and like I said, I'm sure your listeners don't want to hear me go on and on and on about all the medical things, but there are so many medical things that come along with that. And the constant, checks and checkups. And, you know, I'd have a pap smear every six months for four years after that. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, the cancer thing at the time was really fast and didn't, in my mind, I was like, I didn't even tell people, I didn't tell people for a very, very long time that I had cancer because compared to other people who have cancer, I had it really easy. It was, a you know, I, I don't know how to explain it besides I didn't really feel like a cancer survivor. I didn't really feel like somebody that should be out there telling the cancer story because there were people out there who were really suffering and dying of cancer. And it wasn't until another woman came into my life later that said, Hey, this is actually a really important story that people should hear because they're going through this themselves or, you know, we have some kind of weird shame around reproductive cancers. Right. And, you know, you're this person that's out there talking to people. And that was my shift in perspective on maybe I should tell people about this that want to, you know, want to know about it. And like I said, the issues that have come up with it later in life are the ones that have been much harder to deal with. Yeah. So, you know, even recently, just the normal checkup. And my doctor's like, it's time for the hysterectomy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, at your age, with the cancer that you've had, this needs to happen. And I'm just like spinning again, you know, I'm just like, right. (laughs) So maybe TMI, but I also think it's important for people to hear this stuff. And especially, you know, moving into perimenopause and that whole cycle in life, like we as women 
all of these little things that happen to us early in our lives, this stuff comes back to haunt us when our hormones change. Yeah. So that's my cancer story. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you didn't have to deal with, you know, the chemo and all that, but you know, it still doesn't make your, I guess the fact that you had cancer any less of a story. Um, it's, it's important for people to hear that you went through that because somebody out there is, could be dealing with the same thing and the same thoughts. Um, which I think, you know, getting, getting your head out of it, um, is a big part of recovering. Um, what about, um, when, uh, you started getting into triathlon and racing. Do you have any um, stories that you feel like there was some races or events that were really, really hard for you to get through and you, you overcame that? Absolutely. You know, I can, I'll always throw out that any race that I do, in Hawaii is hard. It It's just, the venue is hard. It's challenging. And so I've raced in Hawaii probably more than I've raced anywhere else in the world at the various events there, the sprints, the half Ironman, the Ironman world championship. And so anything in on that Island is a mental challenge. Even before you get there, it's a mental challenge. Yeah. But I will say, you know, I've had two or three events around the world that have really been hard on me and it's cold weather events. I, we raced in um, Aix-Provence in France and the weather was terrible. We had thunder, we had lightning. We were, you know, biking in the Alps and it was just thunder and lightning and pouring rain and just freezing. And yeah. then St. Saint, Saint George as well. But I'll tell you, you know, if you wanted like that one iconic event that I can really remember where I just suffered terribly, I believe it would have been in 2016 at Ironman Arizona. I was down prepping for the race. And three days before the race, I was riding on one of their streets and they have these uh, tram systems. And yeah the track came out from the side of the, of the road and I was looking forward at a person turning and I hit one of those railroad tracks that was um, sunk into the road yeah. and it caught my front wheel and put oh, me no. straight down. Yeah. <gasps> straight down. And I broke my tailbone. Oh no. And I knew instantly, but I went into extreme denial and I got back on my bike. I went, finished my ride. I went home. I did my run in excruciating pain. I took ibuprofen and I told myself that I was fine. And (laughs) I, I raced that race with a broken tailbone. And I remember when I came out of the water and the wetsuit strippers went to take my wetsuit Mm -hmm. off and I was just screaming at them, please don't put me on the ground. Please don't take my wetsuit. You know, all these things I had to get help. I had to ask for help to get out of the porta potty, you know, and I did not walk one step of that marathon. I did wow. not stop at one aid station. It's probably one of the only Ironman marathons that I can say that about. And it was because I knew if I stopped even for a second, I would not continue. And I, I, I finished that event. And I believe that was the event that I, qualified for Kona by 37 seconds. Wow. Yeah. And so it was a a really emotionally hard, hard day because I was physically fit and ready, but, um, you know, I had this injury and I don't recommend doing an Ironman with a broken tailbone. It took me almost eight weeks to recover from that. And even to this day, I have issues with that tailbone from time to time, but it was definitely just the, the pain and suffering of moving forward that whole day Yeah, with that broken tailbone. And then 
you know, my recent Kona where I mentally broke down because the day wasn't going well. That was a very hard day as well. And a lot of lessons learned, you know, even 22 years into the sport, just massive lessons every single time you step on that start line. Right. Yeah. Didn't your water um, system fail? And so you really didn't have any hydration for the bike? Yeah, the whole day, you know, I had issues in the water um, with kind of getting dunked and the rescue team was there and they were trying to get me out of the water and I, I couldn't talk to them because I was coughing and I was just, this woman's trying to grab me out of the water and I'm just like, please leave me alone. But I can't even tell her that because she's trying to do her job and finally got calmed down enough to be able to, you know, say, just give me a second here. I'll be fine. So, you know, overcome that little thing in the water, which has never happened to me before. And then, you know, to get out on the bike and finally get my legs back under me and my water bottle broke off the front of my bike. And then I hit some medics up that were helping somebody to tape it back on and used medical tape and it got wet. And so the bottle dropped down into the front tire, which I had no idea. And it rubbed a hole in the side of the bottle. So every, every time I was putting my nutrition in, it was going out. (laughs) So, no, and you know, you don't think those things are, that's not what you're thinking about when you're racing. And so it basically took many, many miles of making that mistake over and over to realize I wasn't drinking that much fluid. <laughs> the fluid was, you know, right. So all my nutrition on the queen K somewhere, not in my body. And then that just compounded, of course, the physical side and that emotional demon just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then on the run with the aid stations being cut short and just the amount of heat and yeah, Kona will chew you up and spit you out. I always kid around about my analogy in my brain is that it's, you know, you're a piece of bubble gum that's been chewed up, spit out, sitting in the baking sun and a goat came along and ate you, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So, you know, that's, that's exactly how I felt that day. And the struggle to keep going was just amazing. Um, A funny thing there at one point in energy lab, I had a little cheering squad of Brendan and some close friends. And there's this corner that you run around and, I can see them. They're yelling at me and they're standing on the corner. So they have a full view and I go around this corner, stop and start walking because in my mind, they can't see me now that I've gone around the corner. (laughs) They're literally (laughs) standing there. You know, that's how delirious you are and how hard the, you know, the mental struggle is. And yeah, then they had, they had videotaped it and it was just super funny to see it because I knew it was going through my mind <laughs> when I did that. I was like, you guys are literally videotaping this. And, and in my mind, I'm like, I'm just going to get around the corner where they can't see me. <laughs> so yeah, it was just a really tough mental day. And that was, you know, everybody, one of my biggest pet peeves out there is the whole, my race didn't go the way I planned, or that wasn't the day I was hoping for. And I don't ever want to say those things it's the day that I'm going to have and it's going to be the best day that I can have based on the conditions that are thrown at me and based on my fitness for that day. And the, the day did not go the, the way I had even expected it to go even close to the way I expected it to go. But that noise infiltrated and infected me before I even got off the bike. Right. And I absolutely know, had I just let that go, my run would have been different. Yeah. I, I, I'm still amazed though. You weren't you 14th overall, even, even though you had this massive failure and, you know, all those things happening to you still like, like really finished well for a world championship it was yeah I mean 14th for my age group and but you know high level age group athlete brain it's probably one of my slowest swims there yeah it was one of my very slowest bikes there it was my absolutely slowest run it was my slowest Ironman I've ever done Wow. All the years that I've done Ironman. And so all of those things are just like, you know, gut punches. And, and the, the thing is, 
I never measure myself compared to the women that I'm racing with, but they are people that I respect and people that I have a lot of admiration for. And knowing where I finish around them gives me feedback because I know who they are and how they race. And I was with the women that I normally finish with, but some of them finished a lot better and it's because they handled their day. And that's the thing about Kona. You can't make a mistake there. Right. For the most part, all of us are pretty comparable. One of us can swim better. One of us can bike better. One of us can run better. You know, some of us can put one or two of the sports together better. Some of us can put all of it together better. But in the end, it's about who has the the day that offers the least hurdles. Because it's about being able to change from plan A to going to plan Z. Right. And that's the that's the mental side. And so what I believe about Kona is the strongest mentally capable person on that day is the one that crosses the finish line because in the top 20 and and really the top 10, anybody could be the person that crosses in first. And this year with the girls that I race against, it was probably really the top 15, top 20, because we were all kind of all over the place, you know? Right. Um, and some competitors that you know, have won our age group before were right around me. So it was just a tough day for everybody. But that mental demon definitely played a huge part in how my day went. And I think that's right. the part that's hard when you're physically fit and capable and ready. And then this other thing comes out of nowhere. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I love to how you like afterwards, you know, you put your thoughts down on your social media posts, but you also like kind of took that and you would post things to some of your athletes who, you know, had bad days and, um, talking about what failure means in, in sport and how, um, how important those experiences are to the long, you know, the long process of getting better and learning. It's really true. A lot of people are afraid to fail or afraid to have a bad day. But again, if you look at some of the greatest people in our, in, in the, a random sport, you know, you pick just a random sport and you look at the greatest people in that sport, you know, the whole, you know, how many interceptions did that quarterback throw versus, you know, how many winning game throws right and that's the thing like if you don't learn how to pick yourself up when you fall down that fall gets further and further yeah you know the landing is harder and harder and I'll admit I my fall was pretty far for the for Kona because all kinds of factors but you know last time I did an Ironman 2019 world championships you know last time I really raced a big A race, 2019 world championships. And I didn't do any of those events, you know, COVID, everything else, just the way my schedule ended up is that my first Ironman back is a world championship. Right. Wow. And my last world championship went really well and followed up with Ironman Arizona in 2019, where I won my age group and qualified you know, for what I thought was going to be the 2020 world championships and to have this, you know, chunk of time where we're not racing and then to come back on the biggest stage of the world, the mental pressure, the expectations high already. And then, you know, the landing <laughs> that Epic fell. And I don't mean it like that. What I mean is there's just this, when you have little things that happen that, fall down isn't so far right but when you have this big giant cliff and you just launch yourself off the cliff the splat hurts the splat was pretty hard for me I had a yeah. hard time with that <laughs> and Ironman Arizona this year was kind of everything about me proving to myself that I don't have to fall that far and that you know sometimes the day doesn't go the way you want it to and you have to adjust your expectations. And, you know, I went to Arizona absolutely ready to prove that my fitness was 
all that in a bag of chips. <laughs> so the the mental side of Arizona was just totally different because I went there with no expectation besides knowing that I was going to do the very best, have the very best day that I could have based on my fitness on that day. Right. And it's amazing, right? How that fuels you differently than, you know, living in this mental space of letting everything that went wrong, you know, if I had just let that bottle incident in Kona go and just told myself, okay, just get back on your bike, go and go do what you can do. But instead the bottle, the bottle problem, and then, you know, losing my nutrition completely convinced me that I was never going to, you know, make up for my nutrition issues. And then I just made, my, you know, then I made my nutrition issues worse on the run. Right. It just avalanched. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like even though all that happened, you know, because you've been doing this for so long, like your response to overcome that and then win in Arizona was really big because, you know, I'm sure you have athletes where when they have one bad race, they let that affect them. You know, the next one, it's still lingering in their head. And, but you're just like, like you literally get up and, and fight for it. You know, from the coaching side, there's a lot that we can do that helps with that. And it is hard. First off, you know, all my athletes are my little kids, right? And so anytime they don't achieve their goal or they don't come close to the day that they are hoping they're going to have, it's hard as a coach. You never completely know what to say. And you have some of those athletes where you can go to them and say, okay, so that was not your best performance. And you did not have the day that I know you, you could have. And honestly, those are the easier, the easier athletes when it comes to helping them get over a failure or a disappointment. Yeah. It's the athletes that don't understand their potential or are new to the sport right. or have expectations that are unrealistic, even though we as coaches there's this fine line of, I, you know, let's just have a, we'll call her Molly, you know, Molly comes in and wants to be coached. And and Molly says, I want to qualify for Kona. And you're like, okay, this is awesome. I want Molly to have these kind of goals and to have that drive and desire, but Molly doesn't swim. She doesn't own a bike and she's done some 10 Ks. Right. right? And you're kind of like, well, Molly, your expectations are unrealistic at this point in your triathlon age and for those that don't know you know we have our our you know human age how old you are and then we have our age in sport right and I find that you I don't want to tell Molly you're never making it to Kona or you're never making it to a world championship I want her you know our our random Molly I want that individual to have that desire to have that drive to have that passion yeah but I also, when she goes to her first event and, you know, barely makes the swim cutoff, when that person comes across the finish line and has a conversation with me, they're devastated. And, right. and so you have to, there's a lot of mental balance there with helping people find that emotional level field of, I don't want to squash this person and their, their passion for the sport and their hopes and dreams and goals but I also have to keep things realistic for them and I think that's the you know I've had a lot of conversations over the years about expectations it's it's important to have an honest expectation conversation but also we all have a freaking bad day you know right and so when that bad day happens how do you pick yourself up from that and you have these people that work and work and work year after year after year. And then they get in, you know, perfect example, they get in the water and they panic. Right. And you absolutely know this person can finish the swim, but their day's over because they panicked. And so there's just all these little tiny cogs in this massive machine that have to keep, you know, rolling along to make the day go and get to the finish line. And I think that's a lot of things that people don't realize is that it's, it is really an amazing achievement 
to cross the finish line, no matter what sport you're in. Right. And the hard work that goes into that and the mental strength that it takes. And this is one of the reasons why I work on mental focus with a lot of my athletes. You know, they do visualization exercises, they do breathing exercises, because when things start to go wrong, if you can just ground yourself. Yeah. Is that your go-to for when you're out there as well? Do you, or do you sometimes go, what would coach Rebecca say to myself at this moment? <laughs> you know, I think everybody has those little mantras that help them get through days. <laughs> Mine, I don't know why, I don't know where it came from, but I always ask myself, would you rather be on the couch right now? <laughs> and, you know, I will say 99.9% .9 of the time, the answer is, no, I would rather not be on the couch right now. I would rather be right here doing this. But those times that the answer has been yes, <laughs> I have never done that event again. <laughs> so I absolutely know that if I, if I ever say yes, I would rather be anywhere than right here, right now, that you know, I need to pay attention to that. But I think that having that go-to thing to help you know, reset that question, that breathing pattern, that you know, meditation thing, all of those things help you when you're in that moment and you've got that little, you know, devil on your shoulder telling you this is the hardest thing ever and you need to quit. Years ago, somebody asked me about the, the drive to, to, to keep continuing and, you know, to want to be at the level that I like to race at and that, you know, how do you, how do you give that knowledge to your athletes and I always reflect back on the internal why you know why are you doing this why are you here what is your reason and while I don't really share my why because it's a very very personal thing and I don't ever want to hear somebody regurgitate it like I've said things out there and then had people tell me those things and I'm like that's interesting that's a really close to how I feel about this and so for me, my why is personal, but I always encourage my athletes to understand why they're doing something because if it's an external motivation, it doesn't get you very far. Yeah. If it's, if it's something that you've created externally of yourself, I find that my athletes that are driven externally don't get as far as the ones that have an internal motivation. And I mean, I had one athlete many years ago his total internal motivation was he liked to eat chocolate, <laughs> you know, very he, simple. He want, yeah. He was like, I want to eat all the chocolate. And so his reward, you know, and I was, it's just goofy, right? You're like, okay, if that's, that's what gets you across the finish line. And, and for many years, and even to this day, I still daydream that there's watermelon at the finish line. I'm like, you know, for some reason, that's a, childhood happy memory and I'm always like there'll be watermelon at the finish line if you just get there <laughs> you right. know and so there's all these different little things that we can use as tools that keep you going right yeah it's just it's kind of like a I don't know a, an art to figure out what you know like for you as a coach finding that thing that works for that person because everybody's so different and that's just it. Everybody is different. You know, always, whenever I do talks and, you know, lectures and things like that for other coaches, I always tell them we are chameleons. Our athletes, most of them have really no idea who we really are. You know, we have this picture of who we portray out in social media and they have this idea of who I am as a coach, but what they don't recognize is that who I am to them as a coach is totally different than who I am to this person over here as a coach. And you're constantly trying to figure out how to help this person. And I think it's one of the biggest downfalls is of coaches. They don't listen. Yeah. They don't pay attention to who they're coaching and they don't recognize that every single person that walks in the door is a very unique, different person, even if they have characteristics like the last guy. Right. And you know, I have two athletes that are essentially professional level triathletes and 
both of these people are very, if you look at them on paper and numbers, they almost look like the same person. Right. But you dive into who they are personality wise and you, you look at their, you know, science-based data and they could not be any further apart. And these are two people of the same sex, the same age, right. Racing, racing the same races. Yeah. And so the mental strength of one versus the other is amazing. And I'll, t- I'll tell you something else that I, I, I've talked about in the past. I've had people come into my lab who have numbers that are above and beyond the numbers that I have seen of people that are competing at professional levels. Right. And these individuals will never even win a race because they don't have the mental strength. Yeah. And, and you can talk to them and you can tell them and you can just be like, you know, I've gotten really excited about these people in the past. I'm like, oh my God, you are an Olympic level athlete. Like you are somebody that meets Olympic qualification, num- qualifying numbers. Never, ever going to happen right. because they don't have the mental capability to believe in it or to suffer or yeah. to put in the work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's... <laughs> It's a little hard really hard to stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cool. Um, well, I think, um, I think that's a a really good point because I've, I've also looked at the side of where, um, like when I was in college, we did these, um, in speech pathology, we actually tested our, um, lung intake or, um, our lung volume. And, um, and I remember doing the test and mine was actually like under average and I was a call, I was doing really well as a collegiate athlete. And, um, and one thing that my teacher pointed out was, you know, there's all these levels of what your potential is, but some people only use a tiny fraction of their potential. So even if you have less than that, if you maximize what you have, you yeah. can get ahead of the person who has the higher potential than you because they're not using it. Absolutely. And so I just spent, you know, a long time really working on that, um, thinking that, well, if I, if I just work on those things that I'm weak at, um, I can get ahead of somebody who's who has the higher potential. I'm just going to train it. But isn't this an amazing example of exactly what we've just been talking about? That here was a scenario where your result wasn't, let's just, let's just say it wasn't impressive, right? right? And this person could have said something to you in that moment that shaped your life in a totally different way. Right. But instead stepped up and gave you the capability to see it from a different perspective. And that for me is exactly what mental coaching is all about. It's about showing somebody that the perspective that they are looking at it from isn't getting them to the next place. And, you know, I, I do this all the time with myself. I always kid around with my husband about this, you know, when something goes wrong, the first thing I do after I mentally, you know, have my little, breakdown over it is (laughs) I step back from it. I'm like, what could I have done differently? What did I do to contribute to this? How was this perceived? And for those of those folks that know me, and I mean, you guys know me really well. um, I don't have a filter. And so I say things and in my mind, they didn't, they didn't, how they came out wasn't how I intended it, but it just came out that way because that's how my analytical brain spun that moment. And And I've realized how much impact those things have on people and especially people with certain types of personalities, like that whole conversation we just had about, you know, these two same, you know, on paper, these people look the same, right. And how you have to deal with one of those athletes is the type of athlete that wants you to scream and yell at her and tell her to move her ass. And that she's (laughs) essentially a piece of shit that she needs to move, you know, (laughs) and, 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 
I've been at races where this person's told me to do this and I'm just like, I can't do that to you. And she's like, just tell me to move my ass. Why am I running so slow? You know, and this other person's like, like me, if you ever said that to me, I would probably stop and we would probably have a lot of bad words between us. <laughs> if you said that to me, like, what do you think I'm doing out here? I'm going as fast as I can go, you know, don't tell me to go faster. Right. And so it's that, that whole mental paradigm shift for you, right? This person could have come to you and said, you know what, you're not going to account for it or amount to much. And right. you're, you're wasting your time and energy. You better go, you know, get a degree and you know what I mean? Whatever. Right. And instead they were like, you, you have this, but you can do this. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess your, your viewers can't see that, but you know, <laughs> here, you know, here's your, here's where our test says you are. And that's the thing about us at the metabolic lab. You know, we get people's numbers in there and we see you as a, as a chemical entity, but there's the art of coaching that has to come in right. to that. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing the, the things that people, the potential, right. That's mental. Yep. Yep. That's why you need a coach. That's <laughs> <laughs> why you need a coach. And I mean, yeah, I have a coach even, and you know, he, he's very good at calming me down and, and, and helping me ground myself often. Right. Yep. So I can hear his voice when I race. And a lot of my athletes tell me that they're like, I could hear your voice coach. I'm like, I hope it wasn't screaming at you. <laughs> so awesome. Well, I think we covered a lot today, Rebecca. Yeah. I hope it was interesting. Sometimes when I go back and think about this stuff, I'm like, man, I just ramble. So hopefully it was uh, entertaining for your listeners. Yeah, no, it was, it was good. And I learned a lot about you. I mean, there's a lot of stuff I, I've never heard and, um, I think that was, that was really good. So thank you for taking the time. And, um, I hope you share this with your athletes and, um, absolutely. Yeah. I will. And thank and you for, yeah. Thank you for inviting me on. And I, I yeah, I enjoyed the conversation. 